Shalom and welcome to this week's Kadima Talk. I'm Rabbi Eric Carlson here in Newport News, Virginia. And I want to share with you this week about self-discipline, the dramatic effects of training. Discipline is training that makes people more willing to obey or more able to control themselves, often in a form of rules and punishment if those rules are broken or the behavior produced by this training. It's the ability to control yourself or other people, even in difficult situations. Your daily routine sets the precedence for how you operate in times of tribulations or crisis. It's all about your training, your daily routine. Relationships and intimacy with God will determine how you react during times of tribulation. Leaders are disciplined. You have to find time for both prayer and solitude. Solitude does not come naturally or easily. Other great leaders from Lincoln to Churchill to Edison followed Yeshua's example of setting aside quiet times. Strategic withdrawal is a necessary part of success. George Washington said discipline is the soul of an army. It makes small numbers formidable, procures success to the weak, and esteem to all. Harry Emerson Fostick, pastor and author, A Guide to Understanding the Bible, in the 1930s said, No horse gets anywhere until he is harnessed. No stream or gas drives anything until it is confined. No Niagara is ever turned into light and power until it's tunneled. No life ever grows great until it is focused, dedicated, and disciplined. President Harry S. Truman said, In reading the lives of great men, I found that the first victory they won was over themselves. Self-discipline with all of them came first. Martin Luther King Jr. said, The hope of a secure and livable world lies with disciplined nonconformists who are dedicated to justice, peace, and brotherhood. We're talking about discipline and prayer, reading the word, of following God. True victory lies in the discipline of staying committed, of running the good race, as Paul says. We must learn to train the same way we will fight. And so what do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to give several examples as we go on today. And many of them, of course, are from my own personal military experience and from civilian police forces. And why? Well, because it becomes ingrained in you and you will do in an emergency exactly as you have trained. When I was a young sailor first into the submarine service, we never understood the repetitive drills done again and again and again. But over time, as you practice these and as you become more mature, you begin to understand that you do these things repeatedly so that it becomes muscle memory when the actual event occurs, if it ever occurs. We've done stuff in the dark. We do it with extreme realism. Fire training, knobs, switches are all shaped that they can be recognized in the dark. Fire flooding, there's only moments to escape and save the ship in a time of crisis. Uh, Most people don't realize that and they're shocked when I say that, but in a submarine, it's an enclosed tube. A small fire will quickly remove all the oxygen from inside what we call the people tank inside the submarine. Fires are critical, so is flooding. Pressure increases 44 pounds per square inch per 100 foot of death. A small hole in the hull or a seawater pipe as big as a pencil will dribble water when we're on the surface, but at a depth of 1,000 feet, that's 440 pounds of pressure per square inch. It becomes a pressurized jet stream capable of cutting flesh and can cause a submarine to sink in minutes. Aircraft pilots, both fixed wing and helicopters, they do the same thing, redundant, repetitive training, so that in a crisis, it becomes automatic muscle memory. Another advantage of this type of preparation is that you become intimately familiar with what you're doing and the equipment that you're doing it with. The movie Sully about Captain Sullenberger's miraculous feat of his January 15, 2009 water landing of U.S. Airways Flight 1549 in the Hudson River 
over Manhattan. Uh, he put the plane down after the plane was disabled by striking a flock of Canada geese immediately after takeoff. Both engines were shut down. The movie portrays this concept powerfully. Captain Sully, as he's known, was a 1973 Air Force Academy grad with extensive training as a fighter pilot, having flown the T-38, the T-5, and the F-4 Phantom. He had actually gone through the emergency procedures. They would have crashed, and they would have all died. He knew by the feel and the sound that all the engines were dead. Sully had accumulated 20,000 hours of flying experience by the year 2007. As this incident occurred, following the procedures to verify the engines were dead and attempt to restart at their low-level altitude, would have wasted 90 seconds it took to turn and softly land in the Hudson. You can't teach wisdom and experience. Sully's experienced wisdom and knowledge of his aircraft and his flying skills saved all 155 people on board. He was disciplined in flying aircraft. He had the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours backed up. He knew what he was doing. He knew the feel of that aircraft, and he saved people's lives. As I'm going to say again and again, in times of crisis, you'll respond exactly as you've trained. Your emergency response will be second nature. I want to share with you how strong an impact your daily training routine can have on you. Police revolver training in California. This is dated because most police these days use semi-automatic pistols, but not long ago, they all used revolvers. Officers were emptying their empty revolver casings into their hands, vice the ground, and placing the empties into their pockets when training so they wouldn't have to pick them up afterwards from the ground. The officers were then doing this routine in armed conflicts, wasting time and placing themselves in danger. Several officers killed in the line of duty were found with their revolvers empty and the casings in their pockets. One more case, a police department trained their officers on the range using the then-prevalent FBI method to unholster their weapons, shoot twice, then reholster. The officers would do the same exact tactic in real life, placing themselves in great danger, as often the attacker was not put down in the two shots, leaving them exposed. This training is thought to have caused one officer his life. The power of video games and television. Bear with me for a minute, but we're seeing this same training effect upon our youth through violent first-person shooter video games and television. That's why we've experienced so many mass shootings and their glorification in the media. In World War II, soldiers' trigger pull rate against the enemy by our soldiers was 6%. And in other words, for every 100 soldiers that face an enemy combatant, this is so powerful because it goes against human nature to take the life of another human being. And so out of 100, only six would actually pull the trigger when they were looking at an enemy combatant. Now... Our soldiers have a 98% trigger rate. What's the difference? Modern training with real-life video games and targets on the range that are human in shape and form. Jihadists watch hundreds of hours of radical Islamic jihad training on YouTube before they commit their acts of terrorism. So what does this reveal to us about the kingdom of God? To train, 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 and train. Train is to form by instruction, discipline, or drill to teach so as to make fit, qualified, or proficient, to make prepared as by exercise for a test of skill, to undergo instruction, discipline. Notice a common word through this, discipline. Train in Hebrew is me amin from the root word amin, which is trustworthy, credible, and authentic. 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 says, but refuse godless bubby mices and exercise or train yourself in godliness. Hebrews 5 verses 13 through 14 said, Anyone who has to drink milk is still a baby, without experience implying the word about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by continuous exercise to distinguish good from evil. 
So we have to have the discipline to work at this, to work not just in our relationship with God, but to excel in the kingdom. We have to have self-discipline to train and become the leaders that God wants us to be. Discipline is training that corrects, molds, and perfects the mental faculties, spiritual faculties, and moral character. Discipline is self-control gained by enforcing obedience, such as obedience to God's word. Discipline is establishing orderly conduct and a specific pattern of behavior. Discipline is to train or develop by instruction and exercise, especially in self-control. Discipline is the assertion of willpower over desires of the flesh. We've been disciplining ourselves, guarding ourselves through obedience to God's word so that we may focus on him, hear his voice, and reestablish his prophetic voice among his people to effect Jewish revival and hasten the return of Yeshua, God's son. There exists a false concept within the greater body of Messiah that moving in the prophetic means to release all constraint and do whatever one feels like doing. That concept is absolutely positively false and unscriptural. I've been in services of places like this, and the word describes it as chaos. King Solomon gives sound reason for discipline. Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 3 says, The Proverbs of Shlomo, the son of David, king of Israel, are for learning about wisdom and discipline, for understanding words expressing deep insight, for gaining an intelligently disciplined life, doing what is right, just, and fair. Discipline is the key. I've met many believers in my life that were self-prescribed mature believers that have been in the kingdom for 15, 20, 25 years, but they weren't disciplined in the metrics of developing that relationship and trust in the Lord so that when a minor crisis came or a bad medical report, they just fall asunder. They just fall apart because they're not disciplined and they don't know how to fight in the kingdom according to God's word. Discipline is why there was a prophet's guild or the school of the prophets 3,000 years ago. God is a God of order who desires that we lead disciplined lives focused upon him. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, Fear of Adonai is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. This isn't talking about correction. It's talking about instruction, discipline in reading the word, discipline in prayer and intercession, discipline in praise and worship, discipline in our daily living, discipline in our work and worth ethics, and discipline in our moral values. You have to be disciplined to press yourself to the mark. If you want to be a leader, then you have to have self-discipline. You've got to work in those areas to develop the leadership skills within you that you can be all that you can possibly be for the kingdom of God, for your family, for wherever you work, if you're not owning your own business right now. But you have to have that. Listen, you can't become a bodybuilder if you're not disciplined and don't go to the gym four or five hours every day. These same metrics transcribe through all areas of our life. If you want to become a leader, you've got to be self-disciplined and work on the skill sets necessary to become a leader. If you want to be a good leader, one of morality and ethical, then you've got to be self-disciplined and work on the things of God and have self-discipline in your life to not give in to temptation. Occasionally throughout life, we all travel the path of suffering, rejection, loneliness, death of a loved one, financial distress, marital discord, challenges, trials, and tribulations. The pain and pressure can feel beyond our ability to endure at times. When suffering through those times of tribulation, it is impossible to think about anything else but that situation you're in and the pain associated with it. God promises that he will always provide a way of escape for every temptation and tribulation we endure. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience. And God can be trusted not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, along with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure. So why can it be so challenging at times to walk by trust, by faith? 
Why does it sometimes take years or even decades before our prayers are answered? Then it would seem like some prayers are never even answered. What do we do? The discipline and daily routine sets the precedence for how you operate in any situation or case. It's all about discipline. Are you in training your daily routine, relationship, and intimacy with God? We must learn to train the same way we will fight. Discipline is to make fit, qualified, or proficient, to make prepared. Hebrews 12 verse 11 says, Now all discipline, while it is happening, does indeed seem painful, not enjoyable, but for those who have been trained by it, it later produces this peaceful fruit, which is righteousness. What we have to do is challenge our excuses. In order to develop a life of discipline, the first order of business is to eliminate the human tendency to make excuses for why you're not reading the word every day, for why you're not praying, why you're not seeking God on a regular basis. If you have one or more excuses why you can't be self-disciplined, why you don't have the time to read, pray, or worship, or why you don't like to do it, realize those are excuses and that you have to challenge those areas in your life until you have succeeded or you will always and forever hover on the fringes of God's glory, never quite getting into his full presence. First Timothy 1 verse 7 says, for God gave us a spirit who produces not timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline. So we understand here that prophetic gifts must be grown through scriptural discipline. This was the purpose of the prophet's guild or the school of the prophets. The first biblical record of the schools of the prophets occurs in relationship to Shmuel's anointing of Saul to be king. In 1 Samuel 10, verses 5 through 7, after that, you will come to Giva of God, where the Philistine are garrisoned. On arrival at the city, there you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high places, preceded by lutes, tambourines, flutes, and lyres, and they will be prophesying. Then the spirit of Adonai will fall on you. You will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. When these signs come over you, just do whatever you feel like doing because God is with you. Although scripture speaks of prophets before Shmuel, before Samuel, such as Abraham in Genesis 20, verse 7, it says, therefore, return the man's wife to him now. He is a prophet and he will pray for you so that you will live. But if you don't return her, know that you will certainly die. You and all who belong to you. Also, Moses in Deuteronomy 34, 10, since that time, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moshe, whom Adonai knew face to face. Even Moses' sister, Miriam, in Exodus 15, verse 20, also Miriam, the prophet, sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. So the formation of birth of the prophet's guild is associated with Shmuel, Samuel, and the other prophets who followed him, such as Elijah and Elisha. Samuel, the last judge, prophet, and priest before the establishment of a king over Israel, were established and presided over the guild's prophets. In 1 Samuel 19, verse 20, Saul sent messengers to capture David, but when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel, with Shmuel, standing and leaning them, the Spirit of God fell on Saul's messengers, and they too began prophesying. Samuel had an ordained duty from God to reveal God's directions, word, and commands to his people. He did this through disciplined training, the good and right ways of God. 1 Samuel 12, verses 22 through 24, for the sake of his great reputation, Adonai will not abandon his people because it has pleased Adonai to make you a people for himself. As for me, far be it for me to sin against Adonai by ceasing to pray for you. Rather, I will continue instructing you in the good and the right way. Only fear Adonai and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for think what great things he has done for you. Although scripture doesn't record an order from God to begin the guild of prophets, it doesn't mean God didn't give one. What scripture does reveal is that God didn't censor or rebuke Samuel about the prophet's guild or school of the prophets, even though it began at a time when God clearly expressed his displeasure about matters such as Israel's desire for a king. 
In 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 through 8, Shmuel was not pleased to hear them say, give us a king to judge us. So he prayed to Adonai. And Adonai said to Samuel, listen to the people, to everything they say to you, for it is not you they are rejecting. They are rejecting me. They don't want me to be king over them. They're doing to you exactly what they've been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today by abandoning me and serving other gods. So we see that the establishment of the Prophets Guild did not violate Torah or the Tanakh. The same holds true for us today. Teaching God's words and using the gifts given to us through the Ruach HaKodesh requires discipline, study, and practice in order to become proficient enough to fulfill our divine destiny and fulfill the scriptural responsibility of teaching others who will in turn teach others the biblical truth. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 said, In the things you heard from me, which were supported by many witnesses, these things commit to faithful people, such as will be competent to teach others also. The Prophets Guild was desperately needed. It was formed to disseminate God's word to the children of Israel and to religious and government leaders. The same is needed today, and not just America or Israel need God's word, but the greater body of Messiah as well, as greater society along with our religious and government leaders need to return to God, his statutes, word, and righteousness. The Prophets Guild came to be because Israel had apostatized when the kingdom split, and Israel was at an extreme low point spiritually, politically, and economically, just as America is today. The essence of the Prophets Guild is in-house reform within the body, from the top to bottom and bottom to top. Hundreds of men attended these schools of the prophets, who were also known as Sons of the Prophets, and there are many students and graduates. 2 Kings 2 records that there were at least 50 sons of the prophets at Jericho. 100 sons of the prophets were at Gilgal in 2 Kings 4. The prophet Amos proclaims with apparent surprise that he was not from the prophet's skill. In Amos 7.14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep herder and a tender of sycamore fruit. If we look at the lives of those from the prophet guild, we see that they lived righteous and moral lives. They maintained a zealous, heartfelt desire to serve God. They submitted themselves to the mature prophets in humility to God and teach them. They completely rejected idolatry. They were honest and maintained their reverence toward God. They operated in great faith and confidence regarding God and his word. They acknowledged the critical importance of righteousness, purity, and holiness in their service to God. They were eager learners and pliable to God's will. They were extremely bold messengers of God's word in the face of great persecution and in many circumstances, even death. So how did they accomplish this? By strict personal discipline in reading and studying God's word, prayers, and prophetic worship. It's the same formula that will give us the breakthrough in both Jewish revivals and Jewish salvations. We live in a computer-generated instant society where time is measured in nanoseconds. There's no shortcut to successes in the kingdom. Self-discipline is required to crucify the flesh each and every day and make it submit to Messiah. Even in the days of the Prophets Guild, there were boundless activities that they could have been engaged in, yet they weren't. Instead of filling themselves with the world, they were filled themselves with God, and their lives reflected godliness. They were disciplined and responsible enough to be commissioned in heavenly tasks of delivering a message from God of divine condemnation to kings. In 1 Kings 20, verses 35 through 42, it said, One of the members of the Prophets Guild said to another one, By the word of Adonai, hit me. But the man refused to hit him. Then he said to him, because you didn't listen to the voice of Adonai, the moment you leave me, a lion will kill you. No sooner had he left him than a lion found him and killed him. The prophet went to another man and said, hit me. The man struck him a blow and wounded him. The prophet left and waited for the king by the road, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. As the king passed by, he called out to the king and said, your servant was on his way into the thick of the fighting when someone turned, brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If he is missing, you will pay 
for his life with yours, or else you will pay 60 pounds of silver. But while your servant was busy with one thing and another, he disappeared. The king of Israel said to him, so that is your sentence. You have pronounced it on yourself. Quickly, he removed the bandage from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to the king, here's what Adonai said. Because you have let escape the man I had given over to you to be destroyed, you will pay with your life for his life and with your people for his people. Also use another guild prophet to anoint a king in 2 Kings 9 verses 1 through 10. Elisha the prophet summoned one of the guild prophets and said to him, prepare for traveling, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramat Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Enter, have him step away from his companions and take him to an inside room. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, this is what Adonai says, I've anointed you king over Israel. After that, open the door and get away from there as fast as you can. So the young prophet left for Ramat Gilead. When he arrived, he found the senior army officer sitting there. He said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu asked, for which one of us? For you, commander, he said. Jehu got up, went into his house. Then the prophet poured the oil on his head and said to him, this is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. I've anointed you king over the people of Adonai over Israel. You will attack the house of Ahab, your master, so that I can avenge the blood of my servants and the prophets and of all the servants of Adonai, whose blood was shed by Jezebel. The entire house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every male, whether a slave or free in Israel, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, like the house of Basha, the son of Achaia. Moreover, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the dumping ground of Jezreel, and there will be no one to bury her. Then he opened the door and he fled. So the things that we see here and what we experience, they are spiritual warfare tools that are sharpened and strengthened through discipline. A young David didn't wake up one morning and slay a giant. His skills and ability had been honed through the years of discipline, worship, study, and sheep tending in the wilderness. David killed his lions and bears before he killed his giant. We cannot be world changers and try to give something that we don't have. Second Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, God's power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowing the one who called us to his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us valuable and superlatively great promises so that through them you might come to share in God's nature and escape the corruption which evil desires have brought into this world. For this very reason, try your hardest to furnish your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with perseverance, perseverance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you have these qualities in abundance, they keep you from being barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah." It brings me right back to the sons of Zadok in Ezekiel and Revelation 22. These two chapters are intertwined and at the same time give the same message. I often speak about the sons of Zadok because they remained pure before God. They didn't get involved in false theologies or stray when the rest of Israel did. They alone are allowed to minister unto God. In Ezekiel 44 verses 23 and 24, they are to teach my people the difference between holy and common and enable them to distinguish between clean and unclean. They are to be judges and controversies, and they are to render decisions in keeping with my rulings at all my designated festivals. They are to keep my laws and regulations. They are to keep my Shabbats holy. Revelation 22 confirms this message. In Revelation 22, verse 15, it says, outside, this is the new Jerusalem that comes down with gates and walls, and it says, outside of the homosexuals, those involved with the occult and with drugs, the sexually immoral, murderers, idol worshipers, and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. Those who love and practice falsehoods remain outside the presence of God, just like in Ezekiel 44. 
If you've been on the fringe of things, it's time to get self-disciplined. Seek God and get involved in the king's affairs with great boldness. It's time to stand in the truth, but you have to know what that truth is. And that only comes through disciplining yourself daily in the word of God, the spirit of God, and the presence of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.